My ministry to Madiba reminded me to paraphrase one of his best-known sayings that courage is not the absence of fear but the capacity to triumph over it. I am concerned that except for a few white clerics in the churches, white leaders, particularly in business, have lost the confidence to speak their minds and criticize. They have been made to feel excessively guilty and scared, as if they are second-class citizens in South Africa. And they have recoiled into a fear reminiscent of their parted years. In a few years, they may be saying, just as they did after apartheid, that we did not know. When whites keep silent for fear of being branded racists, they fail to contribute to solving our problems. Likewise, when black South Africans keep quiet, either for fear of being mocked as clever blacks or penalized in some way, or because they worry that white racists will exploit differences between blacks, they too fail to help solve our problems. Our future lies in the ability of both black and white South Africans to be critical and vocal and work alongside the poor and speak boldly to power. For me, I think the, the moment came when I was in Alexander Township uh, uh, living uh, in that squalor, gangsterism and just just opposite, literally stone throw, here's Senton, here's Wendy Wood, and here's Lombardi East, and, and Rosebank is not very far. And um, and when we went to Sandringham Golf Course, I realized that you know, life can actually be uh, different to, to Alexander Township. And I, I mentioned a naughty story in the book where I said when we walked, we used to relieve uh, the milk that was delivered on the pavements uh, uh, there. Uh, but the moment came again at around seven, sixteen and a half, when the army truck, we used to call them the Hippo or Casper uh, in those days, uh, nearly rode over me uh, and knocked me and I was called a terrorist and I hit, ran heat under the, the car with the mechanic and I said to the mechanic, uh, they want to kill me, the mechanic came out and just said to them, hey, you are looking for a terrorist and he said this young man is a terrorist and uh, he's not and then he swore at them and then they, they left I thought that was a moment of grace uh, I always say saved by, by the mechanic but saved by grace and I said I can't go hating in 2009, the Archbishop was awestruck to receive a request from Grasa Michelle to visit and pray with Nelson Mandela in their Cape Town home this marked the start of a moving relationship between Southern Africa's Anglican leader and Mandela in his last years. Their paths, however, did cross a few times before this visit. I first met him at uh, the memorial service of Helen Josephs at uh, St. Mary's Cathedral. And, um, and my son was a few years old, and there he was, sitting with Oliver Tambo, sitting with the other uh, would-be leaders of South Africa. And, you know, there was this grace, there was this 
presence in this man, no bitterness at all. And he was in church and he was called a terrorist. But here he was at a funeral of an Anglican white woman in South Africa. And you know, those days, uh, these dichotomies were so entrenched. So it was like, oh my goodness, will they bomb us or will they do this thing? So I quickly called my son and said, come, come, come for a picture. And he didn't know what this old man is all about. So you can see in the picture, I'm holding my son like this, posing with Madiba, and he's looking like this. I said, oh my goodness, who's this man with a deep voice? So that was a very tender, beautiful moment. Then I met him again when he was president. But in terms of the book and ministering to him, when I, when I went to Bishop's Court after that call by Zelda Lechranchi, and... Um, I arrived and that, that morning uh, he must have had a sleepless night or he must have slept uh, longer than they had expected and they were quite quite concerned and and um, uh, Magrasa had to preside at uh, the graduations at the uh, University of Cape Town so I went, we got there and he had uh, just literally uh, woken up and it was past 12 and after Zelda had called to say, no, he's not ready, he's not ready. And I was worried that now, what does he's not ready mean? Mm -hmm. Is he now dying? Are the doctors there with him? But I got there and we sat around uh, this dining room table with him and, and, and my wife. Mm -hmm. And he was eating cereal. And he said, Archbishop, you know this Zeldina and this cook, they want me to eat these raisins inside my... <laughs> My, my cereal, and I don't like these things. And uh, you know, complaining as if uh, he reminded me of my four, five year old who hated vegetables. I was like, uh, but so beautiful, such a great man, complaining about raisins. You know, I, I was there saying, what are the big issues? And, uh, and we joked and we spoke. And the one thing that I also covered in the book was after that breakfast, when I realized that there were more people. In the, in the lounge waiting to see him. I mean, wanted to be a pastor and wanted to maybe chit chat. I said, Madiba, I don't, so many people, are they not going to tire you? He visibly became very upset and said, Archbishop, people can't tire you. I mean, people give me energy. I mean, I'm motivated, I'm enlivened by people. And I'm, and I'm glad because then he said, Well, after this, I want to show you. Because I'm meeting an Afrikaans fellow, he needs me to talk with him. And we had a picture moment and we sat there and we connected with him. And I actually realized that giving people hope just energized him. I think what informed my spirituality and faith is a very strict um, rhythm of uh, waking up in the morning, meditating, and after meditating, just saying what are the thoughts that have come out of meditation and then uh, re doing what we call morning office that is a morning prayer with uh, two bible lessons and, and a psalm and then with the staff we have what we call the Eucharist or Mass um, together again reading the lessons and saying prayers and praying for the needs of the world, the needs of South Africa and the needs of God's people and the needs uh, my own needs uh, last. And then after that, um, a rhythm of really hard work. I mean, I put a good eight hours into a day of administration, of connecting with people. And I don't like um, also working in the office or, or alone. Sometimes 
if I've been touched by a particular uh, issue on scripture and it relates to God's people, I go out and say, let me go to Kai Licha. Um, um, this abundant life that the Gospel of John talks about, why is it only possible for me here at Bishop's Court and not at Kai Licha? Then I, I work with others just to highlight the plight of, of God's people and to, to listen to the pain and joys of other people uh, for my own spiritual life. Uh, but it's, it's actually a very structured, uh, rigid rhythm that I follow. I do a lot of uh, uh, journaling, uh, walking. Uh, sometimes I don't want to walk. My two Labradors uh, come and scratch the, the door and I have to take them for a walk. So it's, it's that pattern really that informs my spiritual life. When I left Sophia Town here, the church took me to, to Queenstown, uh, almost introduced me into, into the Eastern Cape. And in Queenstown, I really battled because now all of a sudden in the poor Eastern Cape, I had this house that had a double story and it had a pool. And I really, really, really battled. I mean, probably one of the biggest houses in that area. And, uh, and what I did was to invite as many people as possible over the weekend. And we entertained almost like not dealing with it. And I'm, uh, I regret that I didn't deal with it. And I just uh, used it like that. And in Gramstown again, there was this huge house. And I didn't deal with, the, with, with this huge house and the, the dif differentiation. I just packed it with people. Now, I'm in Bishop's Court. I mean, there's huge estate that just drowns you and that's when I started to say hey um, and Alex, Alex boy uh, in this huge estate which was bought in uh, 18 something and uh, it was Jan van Riebeek's uh, estate uh, beautiful then I started to say um, let me not uh, write it off let me use it as a center so we use it to get people to reflect on intercultural issues, on intergenerational issues, on sexuality, on interfaith. We've got business people that come to talk about business and faith. So it's, it's, it's a tool now to make South Africa the best that it can be. But at a personal level, yes, uh, nobody should, uh, as a family, stay in that huge house. You can have quite a number of South Africans leave you at the property, indeed. I think, um, just generally, um, maybe also with the influence of my mother, when I say it in Susutu there, my mother used to say, uh, don't talk about yourself, that a child of Musutu never talk about your accolades. You are more beautiful if others talk about you. And now the role of an Archbishop has uh, taken that nurturing of uh, being an introvert, of being in a small parish, preaching to a small congregation, and it has thrusted me into the public space where, uh, as an introvert, I have to deal with my shy introvert things back at home, and in the public space, I have to remember that it's not about you, Tabo, it's about serving God's people. So there's more of public ministry, uh, there's more of really understanding those parts of the Bible in particular that talks about God in the public space, God in business, God in politics, God in the environment, and uh, God amidst the poorest of the poor. But uh, And the challenge of saying, you can't, I was just saying on the Zimbabwe issue <clears throat> to a friend who said, Archbishop, with due respect, 
Um, so I had posted a prayer that I'm praying for Robert Mugabe and his family, I'm praying for the military, I'm praying for all the Zimbabweans, and I'm praying for peace and justice during this transition. So she writes, Archbishop, please, in your prayer, remove Robert Mugabe and his family. Then I said, the challenge with faith and prayer is you have to pray for persecutor and prosecuted, uh, victor and valiant, oppressed and oppressor. So the role of an archbishop is just to see uh, humanity as inherently beautiful and even within bad people to find the goodness in them and to make it shine and to say, come on, let's celebrate our diversity and let's respect the earth and to remember that I'm only a steward holding this world in trust for your children, my children, their children, their children's children. So that focus has been very clear uh, in my role as an archbishop as opposed to just a pastor in a small parish. I think the role of the church uh, in contemporary South, uh, South Africa has been, you know, to, to say, if you are in darkness, and you cry for light, and you undermine your own little light, you will never have light. So let's catch those little lights, Lawrence light, Tao's light, and everybody's light in darkness, and then uh, there will be light. And so the church has been powerful in its powerlessness, or in its powerlessness, because it will say, don't underestimate your individual contribution in South Africa. Even I mean, uh, during apartheid, the church had to say apartheid is a heresy. And once it was declared a heresy, it was really not of God. So Christians could see that you know, we have to be fighting for a better uh, dispensation than apartheid. Now, in a democratic South Africa, the struggle that I've posed in the book and, um, and, and, and our, our role is Christians and people of faith and all South Africans of no faith do not underestimate the fact that you have talents, you've got gifts, you've got longings and you know uh, what you want the destiny of South Africa to be like. Please don't undermine yourself. Play your part. And then we are aware that South Africans are beautiful but they are working in silos. We say let's bring the silos together and make this democratic South Africa work. And I've posed a question in public, which is not making me that popular, saying, when do we, as people of faith, withdraw our moral support of a democratically elected government? Because we withdrew our moral support of an apartheid government, which was democratically elected. Now we have a democratically elected government which steals from the poor, which is characterized by corruption, which has put a patronage system that serves their friends and their closest, and the poorest of the poor continue to be poor. And the church is called, like in Amos, to say, let justice roll like a river, and let righteousness characterize South Africa. So, I don't have an option, and the church does not have an option, but to once again talk about those biblical values. For those that says, but we're not Christians, we're not Jews, we're not Muslims, the constitution is also very clear. Let's talk about constitutional values of healing uh, the power.
has held of dignity 